a lot of you got to meet my friend Bram and his wife Antoinette who were with us now over Christmas and um, uh, it felt to me to take them to the, the, well the privilege felt to me to take them to the airport um, on New Year's Day at 4.15 a.m. for, for a six o'clock flight. And, um, you know, thankfully the airport is super close, right? I mean, I think at 4.15 a.m. it should take 10 minutes if you get the lights right, maybe eight. I don't know. It's close. The airport's close to where we live. Um, and I've done it a thousand times. I mean, maybe not literally a thousand, but it feels like it. I've been to the airport a lot. Um, I've drove, driven myself there. I've come back. I've picked people up. So I didn't type in the address into the GPS. Why would I? You just go down Hillcrest, turn left on Greelot, and it's a straight shot to the airport pretty much. But it was, in my defense, 4.15 in the morning on New Year's Day, which means New Year's Eve, the fireworks kept us awake well till after midnight, even though I tried to go to bed before that because I knew I'd have an early morning, and so I couldn't get to sleep, and then you know you have to wake up. So I was like, I mean... I haven't been drunk before, but it's, I think I know what it feels like <laughs> just from what that was. I just, my, I just couldn't concentrate. Anyway, we pile him in the car, we leave, and I'm driving, and at some point I just start feeling like I don't know where I'm going. I don't know how to get to the airport. But that's okay, right, because you've got your GPS with you. So I just, I just stopped at the light, pulled out my phone, said, hey, I'm just... I know the way to get to the airport. It's super easy. I'm just going to turn left right over here, and everything's going to be fine. I just want to double check. And we're sitting at the light, and I, I, so I just typed it in, and it said I needed to go in the opposite direction. And I thought, man, I've never been that way, but this knows, this says it's, it's going that way. So I turn, instead of left down Greelot, I turn right down Greelot. It tells me to take university. So I start doing that. And then I look down, and I says, it says now it's like a half an hour away. So why would it do that to me? So I, I do a U-turn. I'm like, no, 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 we're going back. And then I second guess myself again. Then we go a different route. Then I second guess myself again. I, and it, I, it keeps, you know, redirecting, redirecting. So did you know that there's a Mobile International Airport? <laughs> Not the regional airport? <laughs> okay, so I knew that too. But not at 4.15 in the morning. <laughs> So I typed in the wrong, the wrong airport, and wherever I went, it kept taking me in a place that I knew was not the right way to go. And I don't know how I knew that. I just knew I didn't know before, but I definitely know this isn't right. It keeps wanting to take me in the exact opposite direction of where everything in me is saying where the airport is. And so eventually, I just pulled over, and I said, this is really, really embarrassing, but I just need a minute. And I turned off my phone, and I just... I just thought about it. Now I'm sitting on Schillinger at this point. And I'm like, I'm just sitting there thinking, okay, I can do this. I know where the airport is from here. And I just left the phone off and just drove to the airport and just by instinct. And I, and I got there and they were there on time and it was fine. And they're back in South Africa and it all worked out well. But what, what happened there was there was something that looked like it was right on my phone, but it wasn't. And I had been trained beforehand to recognize that, even though I didn't know that, right? That's what had happened, is all of those times that I've driven to the airport were training to know the right way, so that even when something's trying to pull you off that path, there's something in you that's guiding you the right way, and you just have to close your eyes to the temptation of the GPS and focus on what your training has told you. And that's what we're going to see in our text tonight. Turn to Luke chapter 11. We all need training before a trial comes so that we have guidance to follow the right path away from temptation. Thankfully, we have even more guidance than that. Now, we've been going through the Lord's Prayer at a leisurely pace, stopping at every turn to you know, smell the flowers and enjoy the view. We have learned to approach God as our dad, as our father. That's what he wants from us. We need to be his children to do that. We've learned that the overarching motive of the prayer needs to be God's glory, that we pray, hallowed be your name, and that is an umbrella to the whole prayer. We've learned that we should be praying for the advancement of God's kingdom in individual lives as people get saved, and also for the aspect of his kingdom that's not yet here, um, the physical coming of Christ to establish his kingdom. We need to be praying for that too, thy kingdom come. 
then we learned that we can give God glory by asking him for our physical needs. As long as we understand that there are actual needs for the essence of life, and we are dependent on him, and that gives him glory. So we've learned that as well. And then last time, we learned the importance of keeping short accounts with God and with man, and that we can have a a clean slate when we ask forgiveness, but we also therefore need to be willing to grant a clean slate to those people that sin against us. And now we get to the very final phrase of the Lord's Prayer as recorded in Luke. So let's read from verse 1 again. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, Luke 11, verse 1. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And you might, in your memory, be remembering that when Jesus taught this prayer on the Sermon on the Mount, he included, and deliver us from evil, or deliver us from the evil one. So we're going to focus on that, lead us not into temptation. We're going to see two heart attitudes to cultivate so that you avoid devastating sin. Two heart attitudes to cultivate. And this is really training that happens before a test comes so that when you're in the test, you're not led astray. Firstly, desire the strength to avoid sin. And secondly, distrust your strength to avoid sin. So firstly, let's desire the strength to avoid sin. And we see this in verse 4 where Jesus says, when you pray, pray, lead us not into temptation. Human beings are born in sin. We are um, children of Adam and Eve, so we inherit their sin nature. And because of that, your flesh is corrupted. There's like a virus that's got into us, like a computer virus that causes us to desire things that are bad for us and to struggle to desire the things that are good for us. And the most common illustration, especially around this time of the year, would be um, diets, right? I mean, you've, you pick a diet. Um, you've heard of the keto diet, for example, where you, you don't eat any carbs, you don't need any sugar, you eat just protein. Um, I have what I want to market as the Archer diet, where you eat, you, you make a list. Step one is you make a list of your 10 favorite foods, you know, lasagna, chocolates, Doritos, I mean, anything you want to put on there. And then for six months, you just eat those as much as you want. That's the Archer diet. Do you think it'll work? Well, it depends what you mean. I didn't say it was designed to help you lose weight. That would never work if that's your goal. It's, in, it's designed to make you enjoy mealtime. Now, do you think it'll work? Well, of course, if you're eating all of your favorite food all the time, you're going to love eating. You're going to love mealtime. You're not going to lose weight. And so it depends on what your goal is. It depends on what your goal is. And so your flesh craves the things, your favorite things. If I had to guess, your top 10 favorite foods are probably not carrot sticks, broccoli, you know, steamed lean chicken with no seasoning. You know, that's probably not it. Probably your favorite foods are the ones that you have to fight the temptation to eat all the time. Now, why is that? It's because of your flesh. Your flesh desires things that's bad for you. Now, some of those things you can have in moderation, of course, but that wouldn't be fun. Your flesh desires the portion size that is bad for you as well. People enjoy sin. You say, well, why do people do the things that destroy their lives? Why are people addicted to drugs and alcohol? Why do people gamble? Why do people fight? Why do they gossip and ruin their relationships? Why are they discontent and anxious and depressed? And the answer is because they want to. They desire it. Your flesh desires these things. You might even recognize these things are not good for me. These are things are not, not things that I should want, but your flesh desires them. People enjoy sin. So the bait is always tasty. Otherwise, it's not bait. You've you got to put on the end of your line what it is that the fish are biting, right? And Satan knows that about us. He's not going to put the things that lead you towards righteousness as bait. 
He's going to put things that your flesh are craving that your spirit needs to fight against. But you need to remember, the most important thing you need to remember about bait is not what it tastes like, but what's inside of it. There's always a hook. There's a razor-sharp hook inside the bait that Satan lays out for you. And as a Christian, you now, for the first time in your life, have competing desires where you have a strong impulse in you that wants something that is for God's glory, not for whatever your flesh is craving. And so what starts to happen is that there's this competition, there's this battle, there's this tension inside you that Jesus described this way when he saw his disciples sleeping. They could not even stay awake for one hour, even though they, they wanted to. They said, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. And so you've got this desire in your spirit to live godly lives and have righteousness and overcome your addictions and overcome all the things that drag you to hell. But for some reason, your, your, your fleshly desire can overwhelm that. And that's why we sin. We have this ingrained desire to do things that are self-destructive and destructive to others. And more than that, we have external desires that are being laid out for us by Satan and his hordes and his world. That people are walking according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the course of this world. These are the things that are being laid out for us. So you need to be aware of this danger so that you can desire to avoid it. So the, step, the first step that we're praying for, lead us not into temptation, is if you're going to pray that prayer and you're going to mean it, it means that you need to have a desire to avoid these temptations. You need to have a desire to have the strength to not give in to the things that are against God's glory and against his will and against you. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says, I'm telling you these things, why? So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. That's 2 Corinthians 2, 11. The concept of being outwitted by Satan. He is a wily opponent. And we are not ignorant of his schemes. That means he has schemes. He has plans. He has desires. He has methods. We need to know them, and you can find them out in Scripture. You can see them all the way in the garden is the first time Satan pops up. And the first thing he does is question the authority of God's word, question the goodness of God, and offer an alternative that is based on how something looks. Remember, he says to Eve, has God surely said, has God said this, that you'll die? You will surely not die, questioning the authority of God, questioning his goodness. Why wouldn't he let you eat this? And when she saw that the fruit was good to eat, oh, this is going to taste good. Her flesh wants to be satisfied by this thing, and she gives in. So that was a temptation that didn't come from within her. She was created sinless. She didn't have the sin nature yet. She hadn't fallen and yet there was this trap laid for her by Satan. So we have both of those. We have a flesh that is a, a sin magnet, and we have someone that's laying the magnets out around us. Thomas Watson, my favorite Puritan, says this, The godly have good foresight. They foresee the evil of a temptation. We are not ignorant of his devices. The wicked swallow temptation like pills. And when it is too late, they feel these pills afflict their conscience. But the godly foresee temptation and will not come near. They see a snake under the grass. They know Satan's kindness is craftiness. He does what Jephthah's daughter did. She brings out the tambourine and dances before men with the temptation and then brings them very low. Unquote. That's a misapplication of Judges 5, by the way. But you get the point. <laughs> he does this one thing that seems festive, but you are going to be brought low in the end. So if you truly desire not to sin, it will be your heart's cry to pray to God, lead me not into temptation. I don't want temptation. I don't want to sin. I want to go in the opposite direction. But doesn't it seem like a strange prayer? Isn't it a little bit odd to pray to God to not lead you into temptation? Let me ask it this way. Let's say you never prayed that prayer. Let's say nobody ever prayed that prayer. Would God ever lead someone into temptation? 
You might not be 100% sure of the answer. The answer is no. Let me prove that to you. James 1.13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Each person is tempted when they are lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So if you're tempted, never say, well, God tempted me. He doesn't. God can't be tempted by evil. God doesn't tempt people by evil. So why are we praying, God, please don't lead me into temptation as if God would ever do that? Right? Is it just me or does it seem like a strange thing to pray? Now, just before we move on from this point, some might argue and say, isn't there one case where God led someone into temptation? In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is baptized, and then he's led into the wilderness. Matthew 4.1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And people might say, aha, the Spirit is God. And the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. But read it closely. Who leads and who tempts? They're not the same person. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, yes, for the purpose of something that was to come, but that thing to come didn't come from the Spirit. The devil tempted Christ. There's nothing tempting about being led into the wilderness. The purpose of this excursion was so that Satan could tempt Jesus so that Jesus could resist the temptation and thus put on display his divinity, his sinlessness, and his power over temptation, his power over Satan. So the Spirit wasn't leading Jesus into a situation that was going to cause him to sin. The Spirit was leading Jesus into an opportunity to show that he was not going to be in any situation that would cause him to sin. And the Spirit is there to empower you to not sin. Satan's there trying to get you to sin. He's the one doing the tempting. So, class, let's have a quiz. It's not a trick question. Will God ever lead you into temptation? No. So then why pray, lead us not into temptation? And here's the answer. I'm going to read the Lord's Prayer again. And I want you to pay attention to one aspect of it that I haven't mentioned yet. Maybe I mentioned it in one of the sermons. But everything we pray for has something in common. Everything we pray for in this prayer that Jesus gave us is praying for something that God has already promised. So, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That is something that God has already commanded. He's already revealed as his will. It's already something his promise is going to happen. May your kingdom come. That's something he's already revealed as his will. He already revealed that it's going to happen. May your will be done. That's something he's revealed. That's something that's going to happen. Give us each day our needed bread or our daily bread. That's something that he has already revealed that is good and right for you to do and something he promises that he's going to do. You're just praying for it. Forgive us our sins. Does he promise to forgive us our sins? Absolutely. And then lead us not into temptation. So do you see when you read it in light of that, you're just praying for another thing that God has already revealed is his will that he's already going to be doing for you. So prayer, as we learned in the beginning with hallowed be thy name, is not about changing what God was going to do. Prayer is about aligning you to what God is already doing. Prayer is never about changing God. Prayer is about changing you. And so when you're praying, lead us not into temptation, that's something God's already doing. He's already leading you away from temptation. He's already leading you out of temptation. The fact that you're declaring it in your prayer shows that you're now aligning yourself with his will and praying for it. Just like you were doing for, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And also keep leading us out of temptation the way you have been and want us to. 
So it shows, remember our first point here, two hard attitudes to cultivate so that you avoid devastating sin. The first hard attitude to cultivate is to desire the strength to avoid sin. If you're praying for God to help you avoid sin, that shows you have a desire to avoid sin. You need that desire. If you don't have any desire to avoid sin, you're going to sin. If you don't want to sin, you need to desire the strength to avoid that sin. It's so interesting to me how people will sometimes come for counsel saying, there's this sin that I struggle with, and then the counselor will give them some basic, we try to avoid using the word obvious advice on how to stay away from the sin. They don't want to do that. No, that's too hard. I just don't want to sin. Well, if you don't desire to get rid of the things that take you to sin, you're going to sin. So that's what you need. You need to desire that strength to avoid sin. That's what you're praying for when you pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation. That is my desire. I'm declaring it to you. I don't want to go towards temptation. And the more you say that, the more you might actually believe it. I would commend that you don't pray it until you believe it. Sometimes you've got to fake it till you make it, right? You've got to say what the right thing is until your desires line up. Like God said to Cain, if you desired the right thing, your countenance would have followed if you'd done the right thing, your countenance would have followed. If you start doing the right thing, pray to lead me away from temptation. When God grants you that, you get led away from temptation. The second hot attitude you need to culti cultivate is a distrust. A distrust in your strength to avoid sin. So you, you desire strength to avoid sin. Guess where you want that strength to come from? From God. That's why you're praying to Him. Lead me not into temptation. Part of that prayer is distrusting your own ability to avoid temptation without his help. That's why you're praying. If you think you can do it yourself, you're not going to pray for it. I want you to know you can't do it yourself. You think, well, I can withstand that. I'm not, I'm not tempted by that. Mm, be suspicious of that confidence. That's how they get you. That's how... Satan and his hordes can get you. They find something that you're not even trying to avoid. That's not something I struggle with. Me, I don't struggle with alcoholism, so I can have a little bit more to drink than most people. Mm, I don't know about that. Well, me, I don't, I don't struggle with um, distrusting God. I don't uh, struggle with coveting money. Uh, I don't struggle with bad stewardship. I can spend my money on this. I can mm, be careful lest you fall. So when you pray, lead us not into temptation, you are expressing your distrust in your own strength to avoid sin without God's help. So the fact that Jesus says you need to ask God for help shows that you need God's help. You don't have the strength on your own. And you know what the best part about this is? God gets the glory when you avoid sin. You're not saying, the reason I don't sin in that area is because I'm not even tempted in that area. Because I'm just so righteous. I have the strength in myself to avoid that temptation. No, the reason you don't sin in that area is because God is leading you out of that temptation. Now, there's, we all, there's a lot of sins that you know, I think all human beings might be tempted by. And then there's some sins that only some human beings are tempted by. And you might not be in that class. You might not be a person that's tempted to covet luxury vehicles, for example. You're like, I don't see the point. I mean, just drive something that just gets you from point A to B. Other people, they just love cars, and that's their thing. Um, and you don't even understand that. That's such a dumb temptation. I'm not tempted by that. Well, maybe you were raised in such a way or born into a situation or have had life experiences that helped shape your ability to think more reasonably about those things so that they're not a temptation. Sometimes people will say it like this, like, well, homosexuality is just not a temptation for me at all. Well, I don't understand how it can be a temptation for somebody. Well, remember, God has put you in a situation where that particular thing is not 
gravitational pull for you. You don't get the glory for that, though. God gets the glory for that. Anything that you have strength to resist, God gets the glory for that. And that's what you're praying when you say, lead me not into temptation. There is, there is no sin out there that I am impervious to, were it not for God. And so he gets all the glory. And so everything that happens is used to give God glory. So when I triumph over sin, he gets glory for that. And temptations can bring God glory when they are resisted. In fact, the word temptation is a word that just means test. I think it's rightly translated temptation here because in English, a test is um, almost positive and a temptation is negative. The word um, in Greek, periodzo, is a neutral word. And its positivity or negativity is determined by the context. And so when you say, lead us not into temptation, obviously you're saying, lead us not into something negative. You would never say, lead me not into something that's good for me. Um, so temptation is the right translation here. Pera, periazo. But James says this in James 1, 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials. That's a positive thing. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Well, that word for trials there is periosmos. It's the same word. Test. So lead us not into tests. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter tests. So there's a positive and a negative, and it, it really depends on what's happening in the context there. And when there is a test and you pass it, you're showing off, displaying, manifesting an ability that's there to overcome the test. That's the purpose of a test. And for Christians, we're manifesting God's glory to help you overcome that test. It's like, why do you go for a driver's test? And why don't you just go up to the window and say, I can drive. You know how I know? I drove here. <laughs> no, that's not legal, but it proves the point. <laughs> They're like, no, we don't know that you can drive until we test you. Now, I've taken driver's tests in multiple different places, uh, California and Alabama and South Africa. And let me tell you, I don't know how they don't have more accidents in California because it is super easy to get a license there. <laughs> I mean, I'm not making this up. At one point, I'm sitting in the car and the lady says, the first question she asks me, she gets in the car, okay, we're going for the driver's test. She says, what is the hand signal for turn left? And I'm, I stick my hand out. I'm guessing, because I didn't know. I was like, uh, do people still do hand signals? And she says, yes. Next question, what is the hand signal for turn right? And I look, <laughs> I look at her in the window and how far that is, and I'm like, no, that can't be the right answer. So I just kind of put my hand out the window and go like that. <laughs> and she looks at me, and she bursts out laughing, and she says, you're cute. And, and that was it. <laughs> They have, that, she was fine with that. And so we drove. She thought I was joking. She thought I was being cute. I was like, I have no idea. If I wanted to go that way and I didn't have an indicator, I, I guess I'd tell the people, hey, I'm going that way. And they turn. Since then, I've learned it's, I don't know what it is. It doesn't matter. I mean, I better go learn that. Anyway, in South Africa, we have a system called the K53 method. K53 method is um, extremely difficult. To pass your test, you have to be able to parallel park on an incline. You have to check your blind spots every eight seconds while you're driving. That's not, that's not safe, by the way, but that's what they want you to do. And you have to keep your hands at, uh, what's it, you know, 10 and 2 all the time. So when you turn, you got to turn like this. I'm not kidding. And so now you're parking, parallel parking on an incline backwards, checking your blind spots, going like this, you know, if you can pass that test, you can drive. And almost nobody passes it the first time. I passed it the first time. But um, <clears throat> I was the only person in my family that managed to do that, if I remember correctly, which I'm probably not. But it's a difficult thing because you, you have to practice. You have to go for lessons to learn how to do that. Well, the purpose of a trial that God gives you a test that God allows to develop in your life, a situation, isn't because he wants you to sin. He never tempts you to sin. He only allows you into a situation that he knows you can get through. He always provides the way of escape. 
And the purpose of that is to show that you have the ability to triumph over the test. And you know that that ability doesn't come from you. You know that that ability comes from God. And that's what you're praying for. Lead us not into temptation. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. What time of need is that talking about? Time of temptation. Now you might be saying, I thought, I thought the Bible said in James that God cannot be tempted by evil, but this says that Jesus was tempted in every way, but Jesus is God. Okay, I don't want you to get confused by all of this. Jesus has two natures, divine nature, human nature. Now, Jesus was not born with a sin nature like the rest of us because he was born of a virgin, and the seed of Adam is what transmits the sin. So he was born sinless and remained sinless, and yet he had the weaknesses of human frailty. So he could be tempted in every way that we are tempted from the fleshly point of view. When you're hungry, you get hangry, right? When you are tired, you get um, less patient with people. When you um, are faced with a, a physical danger like a storm and you're in a little boat, your adrenaline kicks in and your body has a fight or flight and you are tempted to not trust God. And you're tempted to be anxious. And Jesus finds himself in those types of situations by being human. And so, yes, he was being tested. He was being tempted in those areas and yet always without sin. When he feels that anxious, that anxiety mechanism kick in with the, the adrenaline in his body in the storm, he doesn't succumb to it. He doesn't justify it, rationalize it. Oh, I'm only human. No, he resists it and trusts God and rebukes his disciples, ye of little faith. If I can do it, you can do it. And you might be saying, no, but you're God. No, I'm a human. I'm fully human. And as fully human, I'm resisting this temptation, and you need to as well. And that's why he sympathizes with us. He knows what it's like. You might say, was he really tempted in every single way? Was he tempted to waste time on Facebook? like we are. He, it doesn't say he was tempted in every sin that ever would exist, but sins come in categories, and there are ways that we are tempted, and he was tempted to all of these things in different ways. If you want to ask during the Q&A about peccability and impeccability, we can get into it then, but... There's a debate about that. Could Jesus have sinned even, you know, could he have sinned or could he not have sinned? Don't worry about it. Um, he didn't sin. That's what you need to know. Well, we live in a minefield of temptation. We need guidance to get through this. And so that's what you're praying. Lead us not in temptation. So you're praying for the, the strength. You want to desire the strength to overcome it. That's a good first step. But you also have to distrust your own ability to do it by yourself. That's why you, you need God's help. You know, after World War II, during World War II, when the Nazis would clear a, a ghetto, you know, they first herded all of the Jews into these ghettos where they could be contained. And then when they shipped them out to concentration camps, they cleared these ghettos to find people that were hiding. And one of the things that they did is once they got everybody out, they then went and loaded booby traps all over these ghettos, these towns. And they would put explosive devices in, um, in a situation like with a, can, with a can of food in the kitchen. So if you lift up a can of food, it explodes and kills you. Well, they would put it in a piano or in a couch or in a bed or in a, uh, a cupboard in a kitchen. So that if there was anybody that was hiding that they couldn't find, those people would come out. And when they were looking for food or they sit down on a couch or they pick up a can of, of beans or something, boom, and they die. And so everything that looks harmless and looks normal, just a cupboard, a can of beans, and a piano, potentially could be something that killed them. And you need to start viewing the world that way when it comes to temptation. That there are things out there that look harmless, but for you, it might be a snare. It might be something that explodes on you. 
It might be something that, that drags you into sin. So every time you're, you're watching a movie, there is a worldview there that might start affecting your thinking that you need to be aware of. The commercial may pop up that now starts generating the, the juices of desire for coveting a new truck that you didn't even know that you needed until that commercial told you how good it is and how shiny it is and, and how little it's going to cost you. Now suddenly it's all you can think about. Well, where did that come from? That was, a, that was just a harmless thing. Someone else watched that and it just, they, you know, just went by. But for you, it was, it was enticing. It can be anything, the TV, books. Every lecture you sit through in college, there is information being pumped at you that you need to be aware. This could be harmless. It could be harmful. You need to be aware of these things. You need to filter these things out. And just because someone else is able to pick up a can of beans without it exploding doesn't mean that your can of beans isn't going to explode. You need to be careful and be aware of Satan's schemes. And that's why you need to pray. Lord... Lead me not into temptation. Lead me through it. Through this minefield. I don't want to step in the wrong place. T tell me which way to go. I read an article once about rats saving human lives in Mozambique. Mozambique, during the, the war, they had a lot of landmines, and some of those landmines are still there. People still to this day die from landmines in Mozambique. And so they, they used to use dogs but they found that they can train rats. And it, when I first thought this, I was like, this is brilliant. You, you round up a bunch of rats and let them run in a field, and when they blow up, then the mines are gone. But that's not how they do it. They actually train the rats to sniff out the mine, and the rat weighs too little to activate it. So you can use the same rat over and over, because they're not going to die. And they go and they sniff, and they show where the mine is so that a person can come and disarm it. And the point is, you could look at a field that looks perfectly harmless, but there are deadly traps in that field, and you can't see it unless you have guidance, unless you have this little companion telling you, don't step there. You need to disarm that before you go on. And we live in this world, this, this, this minefield of temptation. And so once you realize that, it, it makes you more and more dependent on God, that he would lead you through this, not into the temptation, but around it to avoid it, to be aware of it, so that you can disarm it. And this is why we pray to the Father, lead us not into temptation. Jesus made it through, and it's his spirit that guides us. And because Jesus lived a perfect life, by perfect I mean righteously perfect, never sinning, never stepping in any of those minds, never, never giving in to those sins, because he did that, and then that righteousness he made available on the cross as a substitute for your sin, that means every time that you've ever given into a temptation, that can all be wiped clean. Forgive us our sins. Well, that's possible because of what Jesus did. But it's not possible for you to claim that righteousness and repent of your sin while simultaneously desiring temptation and what it leads to. You're praying, forgive me of my sins, and you're praying, lead me not into temptation. Those desires work together. And if you have a desire to be forgiven and go to heaven, but you have another desire to sin as much as you want, that's a problem. You have not come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. To know him is to love him, and to love him is to obey him. And to obey him is to need his strength to obey him. And so when your desires line up with his, you will want righteousness, you will want the forgiveness of all of your sins that you've already committed, but you will also want to avoid committing more. And when those desires line up, you can pray sincerely for God's guidance. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this challenge and reminder and comfort that we are not impervious to temptation, but as Jesus turned his back on it and navigated his way through a minefield of temptation, so we can too by his strength and his guidance. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would convict us of sin, that you would help us to be alert to the schemes and designs of Satan, that you would help us to be alert to each of our own weaknesses, which might be different from someone else's, that we would avoid those things that lead to temptation. And that we can pray with a clear conscience, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil.
We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Okay, we have some questions. Time. Any any questions? Yes, Susan. And then Zach. <laughs> so Susan Susan asked me um, about something she heard Jay Vernon McGee say that um, when Adam when God took Adam's rib and fashioned Eve what the pastor Jay Vernon McGee said is that in the Hebrew that was not the word for rib it was the word for half and she asked me what I thought of that, and I told her I didn't know, but I would go look it up. But it's been public holidays since then, so I have not looked it up. So I don't, I don't know. I've never heard that before. I don't know what the Hebrew word used there is for rib. I'm, I'm going to look it up because I'm curious now. Yeah. What I do know is that that is the text that you can use to justify anesthesiology because God first puts Adam into deep sleep before he takes it out. I'm not even kidding about that. When um, anesthetics were first invented, the community that was most against it was Christians. And they said that God, we shouldn't try to avoid suffering. And that if God has allowed suffering in your life, it's for your good. And so if you need your leg amputated, you just suck it up while they chop that thing off. That's what, those were Christians who said that. Christians traditionally tend to be anti-intellectual when new things come along. Um, at first. And so we need to be, be aware of that, that that's going to be part of our superstitious nature that we have to avoid because, and then somebody said, well, show, show me from the Bible. And so the guy that invented anesthetic, I forget his name, he started reading in Genesis and just got a couple of chapters in and was like, done. <laughs> Found it. The Bible says God first put him to sleep before he did surgery. And I highly recommend we do the same. Good. Any other questions? Thomas. Oh, uh, sorry, I first said Zach and then Thomas. Why are Catholics so dogmatic about Mary's immaculate conception? Good question. So firstly, the, the um, doctrine of immac immaculate conception means that Catholics believe Mary was born without sin. And so in their theology, they require for Jesus to be born without sin, you need to have um, a, a father without sin, which is... You know, he was born by the Holy Spirit, so that's check. And you need to have a mother without sin. Oops, but Mary couldn't just be a normal person then. She had to be sinless as well. And so that way Jesus could be sinless. The problem is, how did Mary end up sinless if her parents weren't both sinless? Um, and remember, in Catholic theology, you can become sinless by your works of supererogation. So your stuff that you do in this life she was just such a holy person that she was born without sin, or maybe her parents were. I, I, I used to pay attention in Catholic catechism. I grew up Catholic. And even then, I never quite understood the doctrine of immaculate conception because I was always like, what about her parents? And then what about their parents? And what about their parents? You know, <laughs> At some point, you got a sinner introducing sin into the line. There's no need for that doctrine because, um, because the Bible says that the... Uh, it's through the seed of Adam is that sin gets passed on. But why are they so dogmatic about it? That has to do with the way that they treat Mary in their soteriology. So Mary is considered to be a co-redemptrix, meaning that she is a co-redeemer with Christ. Um, and so you, if, if he's a redeemer and he's sinless, you need, and the co-redeemer needs to be sinless as well. And so you can't have her be a sinner. That's why they also believe in her perpetual virginity. So they believe that she um, was always a virgin, even married to Joseph, and that Jesus had no brothers or sisters, even though the Bible clearly says he does. They say that word refers to relatives, which it doesn't. So they're just dogmatic about it. That's, that's a good word. Dogmatic means that you believe a teaching, a dogma, a dogma that's handed to you from a council. As we heard a couple of Sundays again, futile ways inherited from your forefathers. And most Catholics would not be able to defend those doctrines even if they wanted to because they were just handed down to them. It's not built on the scriptures. Good question, though. 
that answer everything? Thomas. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. So let me just repeat that. So um, Thomas is asking about in Genesis chapter 4, um, there's this little poem, this little rap song by a guy called Lamech. Um, <laughs> the reason I always think of that is because I once was present for a sermon by R. Kent Hughes. He's a great preacher. You know, he's, he's the disciplines of a godly man. And he was preaching on this text, and he translated it and delivered it as a rap song. Um, it was terrifying. Um, anyway, you know, it goes on. There's this sort of genealogy here. Um, you know, Cain knew his wife in verse 17 and, and has Enoch. Um, Enoch was born Erad. Erad has male. And then suddenly it gets this guy, you know, Methuselah, father Lamech. Lamech, now it goes off on a little tangent about him. Firstly, it says he has two wives. That's the first case of polygamy. Um, he has wives... Um, uh, what are their names again? Ada and Zilla, you know, the A to Z of wives there. And she has Jabal, Ada has Jabal, and this happens. And, and then it goes off in verse 23, and he says to his wives, I've got these wives, I've killed a man for wounding me. And, and so your question is like, what's that doing in the genealogy? And so what, what's happening is it's very, very early on in human history after the fall. So, so far in the narrative, you've got the Garden of Eden where everything's perfect. You have the introduction of sin. And at this point, the reader might think, how did things get as bad as we know now when we're reading this in Moses' time when it's being delivered um, from biting a fruit? And the answer is Lamech. Or Cain first. So Cain kills Abel. There's no law against killing, but there's an assumption that he knew that that was wrong. Um, and the next thing that happens is you've got polygamy. You've got this revenge. Cain is already a proverb that people are saying, oh, sevenfold for Cain's revenge. Well, mine's going to be seven, sevenfold. It's just using poetic hyperbole. And he's just kind of um, presenting himself as the tough guy, like the, the one that people need to fear. He's, there's a domination there. He's changing the way marriage works. He's changing the way revenge works. He's, his children are, are developing different types of societies, those that dwell in tents, those that um, built musical instruments, those that forged instruments of bronze, like this is right at the beginning of civilization, and he's just establishing himself really as like the first mafioso godfather of, I don't care about this whole rule, the way things happen with Cain, if you hurt me, I'm going to kill you 77-fold, you know, and I can marry who I want, I can do what I want. So I think that the way, the reason that um, God revealed this to Moses to insert right there is to show how quickly and how badly things got after the fall, because that's chapter 5. Chapter 6, you got the flood. Yeah. John. Yeah, great question. Let me just summarize. So this is a question about hermeneutics of how to, when you're interpreting the Bible, um, there's generally prescriptive literature and descriptive literature in the Bible. Those are the two main categories that you're looking for. So am I reading something that just describes what happened or, you know, narrative? This is what happened. This is what Abraham did. He prayed in this way for, for Sodom and Gomorrah to be saved, and he bargained with God in a sense, and he keeps coming back, and he does it respectfully, but that's just what happened versus prescriptive Somebody asks Jesus, how should we pray? He says, pray like this. Let me prescribe for you how to do it. Um, and the epistles have lots of prescriptive things. You know, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, etc. So there's like, don't do this. Do do this. Um, whereas narrative is just, you know, 
Paul got laid down in a basket or whatever. It's like the stuff that was happening, like in the book of Acts or in the Gospels and that. So um, his, uh, John's question is, I think, how should we take something like Abraham's prayer? And so I think the first step is to recognize it's a narrative. It's recording something that Abraham did. We can learn a lot of principles from that. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and instruction and training in righteousness. So I'm going to look at that and say, well, this is a man that God reckoned righteousness to. God views him as the stalwart of the faith, you know, the patriarch. God answers him. He doesn't say, stop asking. Um, and I think I can learn principles on seeing what God responded in that way. So if I ask God in a respectful manner, etc., I could apply those. But I wouldn't take that as, this is how we should all pray. Um, that I should go to where Jesus is, this is how to pray. And even we often talk about how Paul prays as an example. Well, that's just recording how Paul prayed. But of course, it's profitable for our teaching. So this is an apostle that had direct re revelation from God, and he prays and God answers. So let me see how he prays and see what I can learn. Oh, this is what he does. This is what he doesn't pray for, etc. So you can do that with the whole Bible. You read anything in the book of Judges. So Jephthah sacrificed his daughter. Well, that's not prescriptive. Don't sacrifice your daughter. It's descriptive. So what do we learn? We learn this is what happens when people don't know what the word of God says and they make rash vows and they try to keep them. Okay, I'm not going to do that then. So uh, hopefully you notice that in my preaching as well when I preach narrative. That's why I always try to preach different genres at the same time. I don't know if you've noticed that, but like in the, we, when we're doing an epistle in the Sunday morning, then we'll do a narrative on Wednesday or narrative or a prophecy in the evening. I try to preach all the different genres kind of going around in circles Make sure that we're always hearing all the different types of hermeneutics so that over time, you will just inductively learn that. So if you sit in another church or you hear a sermon online and the person just reads a verse and starts talking about something that's not connected, you'll say, huh, there's something off about that. So, so what I'm trying to model is whenever we read something, I try to explain why it is that now I'm giving application. I'm saying you should, you know, you should read your Bible more when Jephthah kills his daughter. This is why, because the reason that he killed his daughter is because he didn't know the word of God, etc. You can't know the so. Hopefully, I, I don't worry. You don't have to pay attention. Hopefully, if you just sit here long enough, it'll happen. But um, that's a very, very good question about prescriptive and descriptive.